0: Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Delamar Vera was born on December 5, 1997, at Temple University Hospital in Philadelphia to Lizeta Cuevas, who went by Luz, and Pedro Vera. Immediately after Delamar was born, Luz met Pedro's cousin, Carolyn Correa, who had also allegedly just given birth a couple of days earlier while at home. Carolyn's teenage daughter, Angelica, was away from home that weekend, visiting her father, and had not been there for the birth, but a family friend had allegedly gone over to help. Angelica said she saw her mom two days after giving birth to a baby girl that she named Aaliyah Ann Hernandez. On December 15, 1997, 10 days after the birth of Delamar, Luz went out searching for a job. While she was gone, Pedro's mother was babysitting Delamar and her two older brothers. Sometime after 5 p.m., Luz returned home to shockingly find smoke coming from the house. Everyone was outside and accounted for, except for Delamar panicked Luz ran inside injuring herself through the smoke and debris and came upon delamar's crib but it was empty she also saw the window was open near the crib which was strange considering the cold temperatures outside unable to speak fluent english she began screaming that delamar was missing pedro had arrived home after the firefighters and began crying out for his daughter after firefighters got the fire under control They told Luz that her newborn had perished in the fire, despite never finding her remains. But Luz never believed this theory and felt her daughter was somehow still alive. The medical examiner's office even returned to the scene twice, once with a forensic anthropologist, but still no remains were found. A report would state that Delamar perished in an accidental fire caused by an overheated extension cord attached to a space heater near the crib. The case was then quickly closed, but Luz still remained adamant that her daughter had been kidnapped. Four years after the fire, Pedro went to a baby shower and saw Carolyn and Aaliyah leaving. Pedro said the girl looked at him, smiled, and waved. He said that moment gave him a strange feeling inside. Two years later, in January 2003, Luz attended a birthday party for a child related to Pedro. While there, Carolyn Korea showed up again with Aaliyah, which caught Luz's attention and gave her a strange feeling in the pit of her stomach. The more she looked at Aaliyah, the more she noticed that this little girl looked a lot like herself. She even saw a dimple that matched the dimple that Delamar had when she was born. She then began to think that maybe Carolyn had set the fire six years ago on purpose in order to steal baby Delamar. Luz then came up with a quick plan to try and prove this. She told Aaliyah that she had chewing gum in her hair and would help her get it out. As Luz pretended to be getting the gum out of her hair, she plucked a few strands from the girl's head and took them to the police department. However, they said they were unable to perform those types of tests at the station. So finally, Luz contacted Angel Cruz, a Pennsylvania state representative who agreed to help. Crews obtained hair samples from both Luz and the child and took them to the police for DNA analysis, along with Luz's accusation that Carolyn Correa had stole her baby and set the house on fire to cover the kidnapping. Shockingly, the test revealed that Aaliyah was indeed Delamar. It turns out that Carolyn had strangely shown up at Luz's home around the time of the fire and claimed she had forgotten her purse in the upstairs bedroom. Right after she left is when the baby's room erupted into flames. There was even TV coverage from the night of the fire showing that Carolyn was at the scene standing near the ambulance with Pedro. It's believed that Carolyn kidnapped Delamar because her baby was stillborn, but there's also a theory that Carolyn may have never even been pregnant in the first place. When the DNA results came in, Carolyn was reportedly hysterical and didn't believe them. She claimed that if the girl wasn't hers, then who had her daughter? She even paid over $600 for her own DNA test before she was arrested. She clearly believed that Aaliyah was truly her daughter. Regardless, Delamar Vera was returned to her family. Carolyn was arrested and found guilty of kidnapping, arson, and attempted murder. She was sentenced to 9 to 30 years behind bars. In court, Carolyn publicly accused Pedro of helping her steal his baby, which he denied. Some people believe that Carolyn suffered extreme postpartum mental illness after giving birth to a stillborn and convinced herself that Aaliyah was her child. Others suspect that she could have suffered from the rare mental disorder pseudocyesis, in which a woman, although not pregnant, believes she is pregnant and exhibits signs and symptoms of pregnancy. Andre Moore, who was dating Carolyn when she was allegedly pregnant, said she appeared pregnant and told him that Aaliyah was his daughter. Andre was suspicious and took a paternity test in 1999, which proved he was not the child's father. Carolyn also had three other children who thought Aaliyah was their sibling. She had obtained a birth certificate for Aaliyah on January 6, 1998, reporting that she gave birth at home and listed herself as the attendant. The state registrar said Carolyn didn't need to present a baby, only an affidavit from the local registrar's office. That affidavit, however, was accidentally destroyed. The fire at Luz's home wasn't the only fire Carolyn had set. In 1996, she set fire to a Hamilton, New Jersey medical office where she worked. The fire was set in an attempt to destroy evidence after she stole and cashed company checks, for the crime, she was sentenced to five years probation. In 2001, Carolyn had a baby with her then-husband, Brian Bussardo. Unfortunately, the baby had a heart defect and died a few hours after birth. Carolyn has also had at least two known miscarriages. The judge, however, wasn't buying the mental disorder suggestions and said that Carolyn may have suffered from depression but was more manipulative than delusional. While behind bars, Carolyn began having hallucinations of crying babies and repeatedly smashed her head into the prison cell walls and became suicidal, resulting in her being moved to the infirmary and put on a suicide watch. The forensic psychologist treating her stated that the hallucinations show that she likely believed the little girl was her natural daughter. Delamar Vera is all grown up today and by all accounts seems to be fine. After getting their daughter back, Pedro and Luz signed a six figure deal to sell their story for a movie which was created titled Little Girl Lost The Delamar Vera Story. Jonathan Madden was born in 1991 in Toronto, Canada. He almost always smiled and loved Beethoven, watching basketball games and playing video games with his older brother, Kevin Madden. At the age of 12, Jonathan looked up to his 16-year-old brother, but there was a problem with that. You see, Kevin wasn't the best of role models and was actually a very troubled teen who often skipped school. When Kevin skipped school and got into trouble, it was usually with his best friend, Timothy Farriman, who often talked about drinking human blood, leading to the nickname Vampire Boy. On November 25, 2003, Kevin, Timothy, and another classmate once again skipped school. The three teens went to Kevin's home on Dolls Road where they drank alcohol and trashed the house with baseball bats. At the time, Jonathan was at school and their mother, Joanne, and their stepfather, Ralston, were at work. That afternoon, Kevin strangely told his friends that he planned to kill his entire family when they returned. Meanwhile, Timothy called his girlfriend to brag about what he and his friends intended to do. His girlfriend became worried and called back and recorded a conversation of the boys discussing their horrifying plan. Shortly after the call, Jonathan arrived home from school. When he entered the home, he was attacked by the boys and shoved down the stairs into the dark basement. That's where Kevin would savagely murder him with a knife. Following the murder, the boys hid Jonathan's body in a basement crawlspace and waited for Kevin's stepfather to come home. When he did, they attacked him with a baseball bat and knife, but he managed to escape and call the police. The three boys were soon arrested. Kevin's lawyer claimed that he was mentally ill and had suffered tremendously following the breakup of his parents' marriage. He resented his mother and stepfather and felt like Jonathan was receiving special treatment. Before the murder, Kevin had shown signs of mental trouble by assaulting his girlfriend and threatening to kill several of his classmates. Kevin put the blame on his mother, saying she never loved him. Several experts examined Kevin, and all of them determined that he was deeply disturbed, but they all differed on what the actual cause was. The court-appointed psychiatrist Dr. Ian Sway said that Kevin was a psychopath with a personality disorder. He also said that Kevin was highly dangerous and very likely to be a repeat offender. Kevin's first trial would end in a mistrial after the key witness, Timothy's girlfriend, perjured herself. She made several posts on VampireFreaks.com indicating an interest in vampirism contradicting earlier court testimony in which she minimized her interest in vampire fetishism. The reason that is important is because Timothy admitted that the plot to kill Kevin's family was his own fantasy, complete with vampire overtones, concocted to impress his girlfriend, who was also interested in vampires. However, it was ultimately determined that Timothy hadn't physically participated in the murder, but had handed Kevin the knife. Furthermore, unlike Kevin, who told people not to be concerned with Jonathan's death, Timothy had actually shown remorse and shame for his participation in the murder. In the end, Kevin was found guilty of first-degree murder while Timothy was found guilty of manslaughter. The third teenager would end up being acquitted of all charges. During the sentencing phase, Kevin's defense lawyer fought for him to be sentenced as a juvenile and be sent to psychiatric treatment. But Kevin was instead sentenced as an adult and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for 10 years. If he had been sentenced as a youth, he could have been released in as little as four years. Timothy was sentenced to two years in a youth facility and three years of probation. Melissa Suzanne Highsmith was born on November 6, 1969, to parents Alta Appentenko and Jeffrey Highsmith. Not long after she was born, the family moved from Fort Worth, Texas, to southern Illinois. After moving, Alta and Jeffrey split up, and baby Melissa and her mother moved back to Fort Worth. She eventually settled in with her friend Carol in an apartment on East Seminary. In 1971, Alta placed an ad in the local Fort Worth Star-Telegram seeking a babysitter for Melissa, who was now 21 months old. Alta began working full-time, cleaning churches, and was desperate for childcare. Unfortunately, she was so desperate that she hired a woman who answered the ad without ever meeting her. She had attempted to meet the woman, but the woman calling herself Ruth Johnson never showed up. Ruth later called Alta and explained that she still wanted the job and there was nothing to worry about. She even told her that Melissa could play in her large backyard along with the other children she cared for. Alta agreed, and Ruth said she would be by the next day to pick her up. On August 23, 1971, the woman arrived to pick up Melissa, who was in the care of Alta's roommate, Carol, because Alta had left earlier in the morning for work. The woman entered the apartment, and after seeing Carol had a son, she offered to take him as well. Carol thankfully declined and sensed something was off about the woman who had just left with Melissa wearing white gloves, sunglasses, and a bonnet around her head in the middle of August in Texas. It was later speculated that the person could have actually been a man impersonating a woman. That afternoon, Alta returned home expecting Melissa to be dropped off at 5 or 6 p.m., but the woman never showed. She didn't have a phone number for the woman and had no idea how to track her down. Guilt and devastation overwhelmed Alta. Jeffrey also felt guilty, knowing that she might not have done something so drastic if he had been helping her with child support. The FBI assisted the Fort Worth police, who initially suspected that Jeffrey could be responsible for the kidnapping, but he was ultimately cleared of any involvement. Law enforcement was also suspicious of Alta, but they were eventually able to mark her off the list as well. Meanwhile, Jeffrey and Alta would remarry and have four more children. For the next 50 years, they continued to search for Melissa. In the fall of 2022, 51 years after the kidnapping, a tip came in that a woman resembling the age progression photo of what Melissa could look like posted on the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children website, was seen in Charleston, South Carolina. A news station in Charleston covered the case, and other stations followed suit. Within weeks, the Highsmiths were in Charleston with an overwhelming hope that their daughter had been found. Sadly, the woman was not Melissa, but it did cause the case to go viral, which in turn caused nationwide interest. One day, the family decided to use the at-home DNA testing kits from Ancestry and 23andMe in an attempt to track down Melissa. Within three weeks, on November 22, 2022, the results came in. They were shocked and excited when they got a hit. Melissa had children whose DNA was matched with Melissa's parents. Days later, on Thanksgiving 2022, the Highsmiths were reunited with their long-lost daughter, Melissa, who was now 53 years old. It turns out, Melissa grew up believing her name was Melanie, and her father was Japanese and lived in Japan. Shockingly, she grew up only 10 minutes from where she was kidnapped and had no idea she had been abducted. Melissa grew up in an abusive home and left when she was 15 years old. She later became a mother of three and grew up thinking the woman who raised her was her biological mother. Investigators are still working to determine who is actually responsible for kidnapping baby Melissa. However, they also noted that no arrest could be made in Melissa's case because the criminal statute of limitations expired 20 years after her 18th birthday. Risa Dawn Traxler was born on October 11, 1968, and lived with her sister and parents at the corner of Bringle Ferry Road and Shaver Street in Salisbury, North Carolina. On June 15, 1984, 15-year-old Risa was not far from home at her grandparents' house at 714 North Shaver Street. She'd been alone at the house for a few hours as her grandfather, Walt Monroe, went to the grocery store, and his wife was at the hairdresser. When her grandfather arrived home, he shockingly discovered Reese's nude deceased body in the front bedroom. She had suffered multiple knife wounds that were described as overkill. There was no forced entry into the home, and the family said nothing had been taken. Even though DNA testing was not a thing in 1984, it was still thankfully collected from the crime scene. Witnesses saw a man running in the area around the time of the deadly attack. Despite this, the small town began rumors that Risa's 13-year-old sister, Jody Trexler, who was at the neighbor's house at the time of the attack, was responsible for her sister's murder. This rumor was even stranger, considering that male DNA was found on Risa's body. Other rumors claim that Walt had killed his granddaughter. In 2018, Jody went on the Dr. Phil show and passed a polygraph test to prove her innocence. Did you stab Risa? And your answer was? No. Did you stab Risa with a knife? And your answer was? No. And the results are that you were non-deceptive, you were telling the truth, you did not. Her appearance on the show sparked renewed interest in the unsolved murder, prompting Salisbury Police Department to seek the services of Parabon NanoLabs. Using the DNA from the crime scene, Parabon created a DNA profile and submitted it to a public genetic genealogy database to begin the process of genetic genealogy research. After getting several matches, scientists constructed their family trees using online genealogy databases, newspaper archives, public family trees, obituaries, and other public records. This all led to one suspect, Curtis Edward Blair, Sr. At the time of her murder, Blair was in his 40s and worked at the Frito-Lay factory just two blocks from the Trexer family home. He had also served time for an assault with a deadly weapon in 1986. Blair moved to San Diego, California two years after the murder, where he later died of natural causes in 2004. Authorities obtained a court order to exhume his body to gather DNA evidence for testing, which later confirmed that the DNA obtained from Blair's remains matched the DNA profile from the crime scene evidence. Thankfully, after 35 years, the Trexer family finally has some closure. Susan Lee Eads was born in April 1963 in Mississippi and as a teenager moved to Seabrook, Texas. She graduated from Clear Lake High School around 1982, and when Susan was 20 years old, she was working as a DJ and a part-time cocktail waitress at the Prickly Pear Bar in Webster and Charlie's Bar in Nassau Bay. On the night of August 30th, 1983, Susan left her shift at Charlie's Bar never to return or arrive back at the home she shared with her mother, Shirley. She had plans to meet friends at a local bar called Jason's Club. The next day, students driving down a busy highway in Seabrook spotted Susan's lifeless body. She was found sexually assaulted and strangled to death with her own black bodysuit near a tree trunk on a vacant lot near NASA Road 1 and Elam Street. Her 1976 Chevrolet Monte Carlo was found in the parking lot of the now defunct Gulf States Yachts Boat Store, very close to where her body was found. The contents of her purse were dumped out in the back seat of the car, and the police believed there were signs of a struggle inside. To this day, her high school class ring and a gold necklace have never been recovered. Witnesses reported that while at the bar, A white man in a cowboy hat approached Susan a few times, asking her for a dance. He seemed persistent, but Susan declined. Then she was reported to have left the club at around 2.30 a.m. Other witnesses said they saw the unidentified man in the hat leaving soon after. A composite sketch of this man was made and published, leading to many tips, but none of them led to anything concrete. While the authorities worked on the murder case, Shirley received strange phone calls from a man who claimed to have photos of her daughter. Only referring to himself as Bill, he said that he lived in Houston, Texas, and wanted to show her these pictures but no one else, but he would always hang up before police could trace the calls. Numerous other leads were developed early on in the investigation, but ultimately, the case turned cold and would go unsolved for the next 40 years. In 2017, her case was reopened by cold case investigators, but they had little to go on. They had the mysterious phone calls restored in 2018. Investigators also turned to a non-serial killer by the name of Anthony Shore, aka the tourniquet killer, who was about to be executed and lived in the area. Shore worked for a local telephone company, and his dad worked with Susan's sister at NASA. He was suspected of possible involvement because his M.O. was the same as the way Susan was murdered. Due to the suspicions, Texas Rangers had Shore's execution temporarily postponed. Although Shore confessed to between 50 and 100 sexual assaults and many other crimes, he adamantly denied murdering Susan. He stated that he committed four homicides and was a serial rapist, He also said that when a date-rape drug came on the scene, he no longer had to kill women he assaulted. He was later executed, but his DNA was taken beforehand and proved he was not Susan's killer. However, DNA taken from her clothing was used to create a DNA profile of her killer. It was then used for genetic genealogy research. By 2020, investigators had their suspect, Arthur Raymond Davis, Davis was a Vietnam veteran and a local fishing boat captain. Just a few months after killing Susan, Davis was involved in a one-vehicle crash. In a strange twist, the crash occurred less than a mile from where Susan was killed. He was hospitalized for a month before succumbing to his injuries in January 1984. He strikingly matched the sketch of the suspect in 1983 almost perfectly. As for the strange phone calls that Susan's mother received, it was determined not to be Davis because the calls continued even after his death. Susan's oldest sibling, Dennis, still wonders about Davis' motive for killing his sister. Since Arthur died without ever being questioned, the motive and how exactly Arthur knew Susan remains a mystery. After almost four decades, in a cemetery not far from Seabrook, one by one, the team of investigators placed bright coral roses on Susan's grave with her family. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.